Welcome to the Readings Podcast. My name is Amanda Rayner and I'm delighted to be joined today by Holly Ringland, author of The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, published under the Fourth Estate imprint by HarperCollins Publishers. Welcome to the podcast, Holly. Oh, thank you, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. (laughs) Now, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart is your debut novel. It is. And you're currently in the middle of a book tour. I am. You are. (laughs) I am. Lucky no one can see me. Lucky no one can see me. And I guess for the first time you're largely meeting people outside the publishing and book industries who've read your book. So now your book is out there, as they say. How are you finding that process? I, ironically, I am at a loss for words. Um, I often sort of point to lost flowers and I'm like, I'm so sorry, all of my words are in there. Um, uh, it is exactly, I think, what I imagined it would be, which is surreal and amazing and powerful and overwhelming and and unbelievable. Um, unbelievable in the sense that as a writer and, and an aspiring writer since I was a child, I'm 37 now, um, every single response that I've ever gotten really from a from a position of authority through school and stuff was, oh, you want to be a writer? That's sweet. Okay, but what are you going to do for a day job? <laughs> um, and and that largely is why uh, it feels surreal is because this is the thing that throughout school and, and university when you sit, you know, or writing classes or or anything, you sit in a big audience and, and often the first thing that they'll say is, okay, hands up, who thinks they're ever going to be a published author and and make any sort of career out of that? And, like, <laughs> if you were really brave, you'd put your hands up. Was your hand going up? I mean, it was shaking, but, like, it was up there because I thought, you know, well, why not? And then it was like, right, you know, nine out of ten of you are going to fail. Um, and so... The book is out there. I'm meeting people who are reading it. This is, it really is hard work come to fruition and 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 the dream of a child turn into me as an adult and it's um, it's it's word defying really. It's uh, it's the time of my life. That is so lovely to yeah. hear. So the the thrill has not worn off. Yet. Oh God, no! Every morning I still wake up and there's that sort of. <gasps> feeling where it's like you sit up almost as if I've been dreaming and I, you know, wake up and, no, it's real. This is really happening and it's it's a wondrous thing. That is that is wonderful <laughs> to hear. That is wonderful to hear. Yeah. So before we go any further discussing the book, I think it's just important to, you know, especially readers that are, sorry, listeners that <laughs> may not have read the book yet, um, to just discuss maybe the plot outline a little bit. Sure. So how do you describe your novel? So when, you know, it's kind of that dreaded question, it what's is. it about? Yes. And the only reason why it's dreaded is I think that if you haven't had practice um, thinking concisely about how to describe what your novel is about, before you realise it, you've spent 10 minutes and you're talking to no one because whoever's asked you has wandered <laughs> off because you're still talking about the first, like, chapter. <laughs> um, the way I describe Lost Flowers is by saying that it follows the story of Alice Hart, who we meet when she's nine. She lives in an idyllic seaside home with her mother, 
and her beloved dog and her books, which mostly protect her from the dark moods of, of her father. Also her mother's garden, full of its hidden meanings, which she doesn't understand. Um, when tragedy irrevocably changes Alice's life, she goes to live with a grandmother that she never knew existed on an Australian native flower farm. Her grandmother is her paternal grandmother, June. The flower farm is called Thornfield. And at Thornfield, Alice is taken in and taught a language of Australian flowers as a way to say the things that are too hard to speak. And Alice stays there until she grows up and begins to realise that flowers can only speak for her so much if she ever wants the freedom in her life that she desires, she needs to find the courage to use her voice and possess her story on her own terms. <laughs> there, there is this absolute favourite quote of mine that links directly to what you're saying there where um, she talks about, uh, I want to have an actual conversation rather than get a bouquet of flowers every time I get too close to the bone and she yeah. just wants her grandmother to talk to her and yeah. that line stood out so much to me. It, like, stood, it gives me goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I, there was a lot of shaking and, and there was a lot of, I, I had a lot of physical reactions writing this novel. And that scene, like I'm, I have to take deep breaths because... Her frustration just, it burns in my throat when I think about where she was emotionally in that scene and and that feeling where you want someone to talk to you and tell you truths and stories and maybe we grow up thinking that all that requires is sitting face to face and the hardest and most alienating thing is when you are sitting face to face and you still feel muted and silenced and you're not getting those answers or that conversation with the person that holds things that, to know about yourself. Oh, <laughs> deep breaths. Deep breaths, deep breaths. <laughs> now, yeah. this podcast is going to have a few questions that I particularly want to ask I'm you. so excited about this. I'm so excited about um, this. And one of the questions I want to ask you is about the title. Yes. Because um, I'm a bit of an over-analyzer. Yes. I tend to go, okay, so what does this mean? So am I. Um, You're the, <laughs> the Lost Flowers, I think... I think I've got where that comes into it and, you know, perhaps we'll leave that bit a little bit because mm. that does tie into the end mm. of the book. Mm. But I want to especially talk about the, the name Alice Hart. Yeah. Um, I did notice there was a lot of references to, well, when I say a lot, quite a few references to Alice in Wonderland in yeah. the book. Yeah, And I just wondered, was were you playing on the name once you decided on the name Alice Hart or was it, was it something more like did the name come first? Yeah, or? you got it. Whatever your readerly <laughs> gut, um, you know, whatever that deep compass is that we have as um, really inquisitive readers and I'm the same, um, you, like whatever was sort of in there and a bit opaque to me, your, and this is the magic of writing and reading, your your compass has picked up on that because the Alice in Wonderland references were a secondary, they were a secondary um, sort of playfulness, if you like, um, because, you know, she is the most famous Alice, yes. really, yeah. that, that we that we know in, in, in literary culture, of course, and stories. But um, there were lots of sort of personal plays on the name for me, um, which came 
way back in sort of 2013 in vague times where the shadows in my imagination were starting to dance and take form before I'd even put a word on paper. Um, And I was thinking about what the name of my heroine would be because it would always be a woman. And I was thinking that I would write her from young to old. I wanted to follow her, younger to older, I should say. I wanted to follow her in a linear fashion because I was thinking about, I lived most of the year in Manchester with my English partner, Sam, Um, and I am an hour away from the Bronte Moors. So reading Wuthering Heights and um, Jane Eyre is a way to read the landscape around me as well, which is always an amazing way to, you know, for me to get a sense of belonging. I'm so pleased we got Wuthering Heights into this podcast. I know, I me too. I was like, i got to go there. Got to, yeah. I mean, the, the whole Heathcliff, like he was a big, you know, inspiration and so on. Um, again, for that same reason, because I was close to that land where mm. he was drawn and written. But that moment at the end of Jane Eyre when um, she says, you know, and dear reader, I married him, that always struck, like, why is that so powerful when we read it? And, of course, it's because it's a beautiful moment and we've been waiting for it, but it's also because we've loved that Jane Mm. since she was child Jane. Mm. So when I was thinking about the name... I was thinking about um, the different places in me that she comes from because I'm a big believer in fiction being emotional truth. So thinking about what feelings this character had. Um, I lived in the centre of Australia for four years in my 20s. Alice Springs uh, was yes, a... of course. You know, I didn't live in Alice Springs, but it was funny. I lived 500 kilometres south, but everybody... It's kind of like living in Manchester. Everyone always says, oh, you're in London, living 500 kilometres south. People always just for four years of my life, Holly's in the Alice. Like people always talked about, yeah, you, you know, you're up in the Alice. And so that had quite an a, a deep anchor to me because that time in my life is powerful and meaningful. And then that led me to thinking about the centre of stories and heart and body and then I got heart and then I thought, but I don't want it to be literal, so then I thought I'll change the spelling. And then one of my favourite novelists is also Alice Hoffman. So in a personal sort of way, that's how Alice Hart's name took uh, took solidity and and formed and this was before I'd even written a sentence and I'd convinced myself that no one would ever read it. <laughs> that is one of the best answers to a question oh, I've I'm ever so heard. I'm so excited. <laughs> like I thought, is this an okay question? And yeah, then of course. It, yeah, that, yeah. That is great. I you took that places beyond. I'm I so could possibly glad. Have but but like I said, your radar picked up on that because yeah. I could tell. Like even asking it, it's a bit of an opaque question for you to ask, but you know it's coming from I, a I feeling. I thought there's something there. I feel yeah. there's more there. So intuitive I'm Amanda. Glad, I'm glad I asked the intuitive that. Amanda glad. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that sort of. Yes. Um, taking ideas and ideas forming. Mm. I want to talk about the opening line of the book because a number of people I've talked to about the book have mentioned it. It's a ripper of an opening line. I'm not going to quote it here because people can buy the book and read it. (laughs) But it it really is one of the strongest opening lines and images um, in a book, especially because you take some of the initial images and just 
keep them throughout yeah, the book. Um, yeah. I want to know about a line like that. Does where where does that come from? Does it do you have it and you go I'm going to start with this or because I know you won a, a competition um, you know for the first chapter yes, yeah. of of the book so it's a vague question but but is no. was that the opening line from the beginning from or? the from the very first day it has never changed yep i um i was i've wanted to be a writer since i was 3 uh, at 33 i still hadn't written the novel that um because at 3 i didn't know what a novel was of course i knew what snuggle pot and cuddle pie was uh, and yes. once i conceived that a human had written it I was like, well, I want to be Mae Gibbs. Uh, and so then that just evolved, you know, over my life. By teenagehood, late to sort of grade six, so, you know, Queensland grade six, I was about 10. From then onwards, I wanted to write novels because I was reading young novels yeah. and that sort of thing. By 33, I still hadn't written a novel and I had changed my whole life around to try. Um, I moved to Manchester to do my MA in creative writing and I had stopped and started and I'd written 50,000 words here and 40,000 words there and it wasn't sticking and it wasn't coming from my gut. Um, it For me to get over my own fear uh, of failure, fear of of being seen, of being read, of failing, of being laughed at, called names. I mean, all those things that the inner critic and self-doubt will have you believe. Um, I, I just could not get past the very choking, burning fear enough to write freely in a way that just didn't feel like I was constantly being stuck with pins, you know. Um, it took someone in my immediate family dying and my bereavement and grief over their death to make me realise how very little is between a breath and no breath. And that, that awareness drove me to my desk and it was a clear sunny day in Manchester, which is unheard of. Um, and I sat down at my desk and I took the lid off my pen and I sat there and I looked out the window and I took a deep breath and it came straight from my belly and I wrote it down and it has never changed and Alice had arrived fully formed, nine years old, and I was suddenly obligated to this being, albeit a fictional one, but she, I felt her. And sometimes we can't see things that we feel, but we believe them. And so when I couldn't keep writing for myself, you know, my best friend Libby would say to me, Alice is not, Alice can't do this without you. And I'm like, <laughs> damn you, <laughs> damn pressure. you, best friend. Um, and so, yeah, that is how she, that is how she and that line arrived and really was the, was the compass the whole way through. Oh, that's that's wonderful to hear because, yeah, as I keep going on about it, but it is an extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary opening. Um, so, one of the first sanctuaries. Mm. So, focusing now more on Alice. Yeah, she finds um, in the book is is the library. Yes, and um, that I don't know about you. Were you a library nerd? Oh God, the uh, the smell of libraries, the sound of the elevated doors opening, the quiet. Yeah. 
like you would walk in and that hush that just fell over you. It was just, oh, and then the beanbags and the kids' corner and it was like being let loose in a candy shop but for your imagination. I I don't think once you experience that as a kid, um, thanks, Mum, for teaching me to read by three. Wow, um, yes. You know, thank you, Mum. Um, it, it nev- nev- that never wears off. I get it now in libraries or bookstores. And once you are independent with money, bookstores become <laughs> become the candy shop that... Yes, yes. You should try working in one. Oh, I can only imagine. Yes, yes. So the library was a great place of importance to Alice. And did you have, because sort of Alice has her, she has her books on the Selkies that she goes mm, back to. Now mm. you've mentioned Mae Gibbs. Did you have a favourite author or a book growing up? Or um, I was desperately in love with fairy tales of of any kind, anything. And I, you know, as when you become an adult and you read about fairy tales, and and the Disney ones have their place and are wonderful and and valid, but it's those essential, brutal human truths that are buried in fairy tales that, when you read as a child, it, it, even if they are softened or, or abridged versions, as a child, like when you asked me that question before as a child and you read them, you can feel something Mm. is deeper in there. And that fascination of how there could be true uh, emotion and human truths in the fantastical and the magical, it absolutely bewitched me completely as a kid. So Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm and Enid Blyton and all the European um, great storytellers, they absolutely lined my shelves. I was obsessed with stories like Snugglepot and Cuddle Pie and all of its iterations and things like Dick Ruffsey, The Rainbow Serpent and Nadia Wheatley, My Place and Jeannie Baker, Where the Forest Meets the Sea. Oh, yes, obsessed with oh, Jeannie Baker. Oh, ob- obsessed. Yeah. And yeah. I was obsessed with those books because it was my, it was the world that I could close the book and go out in. So the, the, the landscape was imbued. I mean, tell me who is not struck by cold fear at the sight of a Banksia pod. Like, oh, God. Well, that's the thing. I think when we're, when we're young, we're willing to be scared a little bit too, yeah. like the yes. Banksia men, like yes. oh, Roald Dahl books used to scare, oh, scare me to pieces. And Paul Jennings. Yes. The, the, you know, the, the uncanny going around the twist, they were fantastical and magical and kind of creepy and yeah. frightening and and there's that willingness to be to to be open to feeling those things yes to see where they might lead you in a story yes. so i i don't know that i i don't know that i had one favorite um but i certainly have a lasting memory of the books like my place i was talking to my publisher about my place just yesterday i loved that idea of place being able to tell you a story right back to before stories began. And I think that was really important, especially as an Aussie kid, because I wasn't learning that history at school. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Well, speaking of place yes. and environment, yes. this ties very nicely into Oh, good. Next, oh, I planned that. Oh, can I take yeah. credit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so for me, um, mm. we were talking a little bit, um, Holly and I were having a little bit of a chat beforehand, and I was saying that in the past I, I generally haven't 
read a lot of books where there's been a, a lot of description of mm. environment and mm. place and there there is a, a quite a bit in your books but i just i just loved it because it was um so descriptive so evocative of of the place and you've got this wonderful sort of fire and water imagery mm. all the way through your book oh, which is you. is just beautiful thank you and the environments they're just so prevalent through the book mm. you've got the the water of the um, sea at the yeah. beginning, then we move into the farm and the river and then the desert. And I thought a lot about those environments and how they're both comforting and challenging. Yeah. And this links a little bit to what we were talking about, the children's yeah. books. The um, We tend to think about environment in its just extremes. Yes. Like we hate hot weather or we yeah. hate cold weather. But yeah. I felt I got much more... Um, uh, depth of understanding, especially about hot weather, because mm. I, I personally really struggle <laughs> in hot weather. And when you're just describing the nuances and the differences, especially in the desert, when it, yeah. um, you know, it, it does cool down at night yeah. and that sort of thing, and it's not just this constant heat, but yeah. it's, and it's different types of heat. Um, so you've lived a this is a very long winded way of asking a question. No, you're, no, you're talking to the right person. <laughs> Absolutely. But you've you've lived on, in a lot of different different physical environments. Yeah, yeah. And why did that become so much a part of your book? Why was that so much a part of Alice's story? Why, why were they so that's important? That's a great question, and I think that probably um, to to answer in the simplest way and go from there is that without a sense of belonging in her literal home, house, or literal family, Alice's way to feel like she belongs anywhere is by looking for it in the landscape that she finds herself in because children are completely disempowered and that doesn't mean that they don't feel alienation or isolation or or fear or loss of belonging or loss of identity. So when she leaves her mother's garden, the seaside home where she's grown up, no matter what perilous dangers and stresses were there, it's still the only world that she knows. Mm. And so part of the, you know, for me as the writer, part of the deliberate approach to writing the landscapes evocatively or describing them through the senses was to trust the reader would feel them as Alice was feeling them, to understand both Alice perhaps in a sensory way and maybe in a not entirely conscious way, the way that she perceives the light, the wind, looks for what belongs, you know, like when she goes to Thornfield mm. and she's completely, completely alienated from everything she knows. There's that moment, I so enjoyed writing this, when she discovers the river for the first time. And when she comes back, she says, you know, she'd at least have the river now. It was hers alone. And then in her 20s, you know, when she, it's water that she deliberately wants to get away from in this great, beautiful land that we're all lucky to live in, if you want to get away from water, you're only going to go to one place and that's inland. And then there's that moment when she's inland, she's turned off her mobile phone, she's now in her 20s, she doesn't know anyone, but she starts walking a dry riverbed in a town and she says there are things about it that felt medicinal. Mm. And she's constantly 
looking. You know, we look for belonging in, in all sorts of places. For Alice, it's looking for it in landscape and how she can anchor herself through her surroundings because people haven't always been there. And you've, you make, this is wonderful to talk to you because you're making me rethink certain sections oh. all over again. Oh. And of course, what you're saying about Alice sort of making the landscape her home, mm. um, you're right, the river when, when she's there and the rela- relationship she forms with um, a character called Oggy, am I right? Oggy. Yep, Oggy. And in a way that becomes their home, yes, doesn't it? Becomes yeah. their, their sanctuary. It's and their that place. sort of, and do you remember when you were a teenager and you couldn't quite hang out at home, but there was nowhere else that you could go? And not even that home was a bad place, but it's just that your parents were there. Yeah. So you didn't have independence at home, even though your parents might have been totally lovely. It just was like, oh God, we can't be at home. <laughs> but then you can't just go and be like a layabout on a street. <laughs> so you'd find like, places that felt like they were yours and were safe spaces and for Alice from a child through to the teenage the heady teenage years that river really did become their their safe haven yeah Mm. yeah oh no that's great thanks for a wonderful um answer to my rambling question oh I'm loving every minute Amanda (laughs) I'm loving (laughs) now I, I can't have this podcast go by without asking about the significance of flowers in your book of course um For those people who haven't seen Holly's book, it is just the most, as well as being the most beautiful book on the inside, it is visually so beautiful to look at. Um, I don't know when this podcast will be coming out, but Mother's Day, hello, if you're looking for a book for Mother's Day. It's just, it's got the most beautiful cover front and back. Um, The contents are beautifully sort of like handwritten and mm. there is just gorgeous flower sketchings throughout the whole book. It's, that is the talent. You, you must be absolutely delighted. Is, uh, d- delighted. I mean, the noises that I made the first time I saw it were akin to those scenes in Jurassic Park where the T-Rex, like, that was me in my kitchen, alone in the house. Just those noises were prehistoric of <laughs> delight and just... Um, the incredible book designer Hazel Lamb is part of the in-house team at HarperCollins. She, genius woman extraordinaire, commissioned Edith Ruer, the most amazing Australian native flower and plant illustrator. And then Edith read the book and the handwriting at the top of the chapters, that's Edith's and the flowers, they are Edith's illustrations. And then Hazel brought it all together on the cover. So it's this incredible fusion of three women's artwork and it's just amazing. That I I didn't realise there had been so much behind it. That's amazing. Yeah. And so with the flower, so again for those people who haven't read Holly's book, she has... um, a flower definition, a native flower definition at the beginning of each chapter mm-hmm. and then a description of the flower and very importantly, I think to me, how it needs to be cared for. Yes. So you have... Yeah. Um, now, for me, I think I'm right in saying that they have been chosen deliberately for each chapter, they that have. they echo they elements of each chapter. Yeah. Um, how long did it? Did that process, was that... Did you know right from the beginning you wanted to have flowers represent each chapter? Yeah, I came across, when I was doing research before I started writing the book, I came across um, in my research, I was sort of researching trauma and writing fiction, you know, as, as, as a way of like what happens if you deliberately access 
trauma and draw story from there, what becomes of the story and what becomes of the traumatic experience and memory. Part of that research was looking at that motif of voice, the theme of voice in story, um, literally and figuratively. And then that led me, as research often does, into childhood trauma can often relate in selective muteness, which is where Alice stops speaking for a while. So researching about voice muteness I stumbled across the language of flowers, the Victorian language of flowers, which was called floriography in its heyday, 19th century floral craze that swept England and Europe. Flowers have been used to speak for, since ancient times, you know, Egypt, Shakespeare, in Turkey, Greece, there's folklore everywhere where, where flowers have emotional symbolism but I specifically came across this 19th century craze where they were so popularly used to say things that were too socially confrontational or awkward to communicate that households had, you know, I mean upper upper level households, mm. had flower dictionaries. So if you wanted to confess your love, your affection, your desire for someone, you would create in great pomp and ceremony or you would have someone create a floral bouquet to confess this emotional sentiment to whoever, you know, you desired received it. But what also fascinated me was that it wasn't just positive emotions. People would send poisonous plants and flowers to say, you have spurned me, a curse upon your house, (laughs) like I spiked you, all of those sorts of things. That really gripped my imagination. And sort of fast forward a bit, combining that gripping understanding with a desire to write a novel that gave me the same joy to write as I felt as a little girl when I read Nadia Wheatley and Jeannie Baker and Mae Gibbs, I thought I am going to make up a language of Australian native flowers. And I started doing it before self-doubt could tear the idea apart and say to me, what right do you have? No, you can't. This is a terrible idea. No, no, no. So I just went with it. Yep. I went with it really quickly and I um, I plotted out basically because I sort of knew the shape of the novel yep. and I just lined up a lot of beautiful flowers over time and also their meanings were riffed off the Victorian dictionaries of flowers but were really informed by the metaphoric metaphoric value in the way they need to be cared for. Like Sturt's Desert Pea, for yes. example, they are notoriously fickle to propagate but once they take, they are hardy and can withstand the most unimaginable conditions and I thought, well, that sounds like courage. Mm. And so looking at the, the, the values of the plant and flower and what they need to survive really helped me to decide what their meanings were and how they would speak to Alice's story. So I sort of lined them up quite quickly and just had the discipline to not allow self-doubt to rip it apart because I probably would still be deciding and not having had a word of the written of the book written, um, I'd probably still be playing around. Oh no, we can't have the, that. We, <laughs> I think procrastination, if I'd let it, would still be like, okay, I'll move this over here. I'll look at this flower over here. So yeah, I just I just went for it, and it was a it was an enormous honour, and it was a large 
blissful part of the story when so much was harrowing and also an opportunity to fulfil an essential responsibility I felt in writing this novel to also be able to acknowledge and with reverence the medicinal Indigenous usages of wherever appropriate in the story, um, you know, flowers that have long been used and in their own way had their own stories and meanings long before Europeans arrived. Yeah. 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 No, it's just, it's a stunning anchor to the whole whole Thank book. Thank you it's so just, much. Yeah. I'm going to crawl over these microphones and just <laughs> sit on you in a minute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the interview's gone there. We've gone there. Mm-hmm. Um, this is another one of my, I've got to ask you questions okay. just for me. Okay. Um, so one of the biggest delights personally for me was Alice's interactions with three dogs. There oh are my God. three dogs oh, in this dogs. book. Um they are their own characters. Now, don't worry, they don't start speaking or anything like that. <laughs> but they, they're Toby, Harry and Pip yeah. and they each have their distinct character and they're each with Alice for... Each dog is with Alice for a significant development part of her life. Yeah, and I just loved that they were there and I loved her interaction with them. Um I've, I've written were they a conscious inclusion. Of course they were a conscious inclusion. I'm, but... Why were they so prominent? Why why did you have these these great characters? Do you have dogs? I I, I absolutely <laughs> have dogs. Um, I think I mean I think it was is it Milan um, Milan Kundera who says dogs are a link to paradise. Um, I couldn't agree more. And dogs have saved me. Like books have saved me. And. Um, they are the purest unconditional love, and um, uh, yeah, I I love them. Um, and so I wanted I need I wanted to know that Alice always had someone with her, and so uh, dogs right from the beginning um, were always an element uh, an elemental part of her story. And I guess when we're looking at a book that's dealing with trauma and healing. Mm-hmm. You know, we I could know, talk forever, forever about the power of Absolutely. animals and their ability to 100%. do that. It, it was it was just gorgeous, and I was so happy at times that Alice just had a dog with her, just had someone yes, with her, me and, too. and at times it it just um, just gave a joy, I, I guess, to a moment sometimes. Yeah, when, yeah. When you could bring some bleak. humor. You could yeah. also bring some humor through the dogs, and I think that animals are also an excellent way to reveal character. So if you don't want to say, hey, there's a bad guy or there's a good guy, you get that person or character to interact with an animal and they'll show you who they are pretty quickly. (laughs) Sounds good. Always good to have a dog nearby. Um, Holly, I could speak to you forever Um, about this book. um, But we do have to wrap it up, unfortunately. So what we like to conclude with is just basically ask you, is there something you're reading now or you're watching now that... Um, oh my goodness! I mean, in the last couple of weeks, I have not read a, a thing to save myself. Um, actually, that's not true. I've started Deborah Oswald's The Whole Bright Year, ah. and um, that has been of great comfort when I've been on tour. And the last thing uh, that I can remember watching, oh, it was Black Panther. Two days ago, oh. I had a day off. And I went to the cinema and I feel like I'm one of the last people on this earth to have seen Black Panther. And uh, even if you're not a superhero movie fan, dear God, go and see that movie. 
it's story messages are powerful stuff indeed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. I, I haven't read or watched either of those <laughs> two, so I'll have to add them to my list. Um, look, you have been listening to Holly Ringland discuss her wonderful new book, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, which is available now from all reading stores. Thank you so much, Holly, for coming this in and chatting with us. This has been nothing but a delight. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Um, you can stream previous episodes of the Readings podcast on our website, readings.com.au. That's readings.com.au, where you'll also find news reviews and interviews, as well as information on our current book, music and DVD releases. Um, you can even sign up to our newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Thank you for listening. Thank you.